Let's start again. Good morning, everyone. Hey, I'm really excited about this new series that we're about to start. And once a year, we want to, instead of picking up a topic and then trying to um, talk about it through the whole Bible, we just want to focus on uh, a significant passage once a year and just work through it. And so this time around, we, in the lead up to Christmas, are going to be focusing on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and originally, uh, we were thinking, oh, Sermon on the Mount sounds a little bit weird. Um, and so we were thinking, let's call it the kingdom life. But then it was like, no, you need to know that this comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to walk through this verse by verse. Today's going to be, uh, we're going to only cover um, the first verse of the Sermon on the Mount and then like a word. All right, because there's a lot to uncover, but more than just the actual passage. I wanted to give you a bit of a background to this series um, and to this sermon because uh, I want you to understand why we wanted to do this before Christmas and why this is known as the most significant message ever spoken. Although, let me just give you a bit of context. This Sermon on the Mount is probably stitched together from a bunch of different sermons that Jesus gave. But Matthew thought, you know what? It needs to all hang together for a specific purpose. So Matthew compiled this, and this is not dodgy um, his history. Because what we need to understand is that the Bible isn't history. If you will, it's a form of history, which we can call theological history, which is the study of God. And so Jewish authors in particular, they would move events and things that happen and stitch them together in a certain way because they are trying to make a point. And they did this. And you know, like when you watch Christopher Nolan movies, right? Like who's watched Inception before? Who's watched Tenet? Who watched it and went, why did anyone make this load or drivel? There's a few people, and then there are other people who's like, this is amazing! Mind blown! You know why mind blown? Is because you went, I see what Nolan's trying to do here, and he's being really clever. Whereas other people was like, just tell it to me in a linear, straight fashion. Like, if you want to make a point, tell me the point before you're trying to go on to the story. But, you know, for us more sophisticated people, we... <laughs> We like a little bit of, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. So this series helps us to go through the Sermon on the Mount and what is going on because Jesus is saying a lot more than just what the words are saying on the page. And this is the longest compilation of a message that Jesus gave. Next year, we're thinking in the lead up to Easter, we're going to do uh, the longest discourse that Jesus gave to his disciples. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. So we're going to stitch these two together over the next six months. It's going to be lots of fun. I have lots of fun. But let's get into um, the meat of today's message. And one commentator writes that Matthew has two different perspectives as he pens this gospel. Um, and one is that he is a Jew writing to Jews about the Messiah. 
He wants the Jews to know who the Messiah is, which to us might sound a little bit strange, but in that time, it wasn't strange. The Jesus group weren't known as Christians at that time. They were known as followers of the way. The way because uh, the Messiah had come and said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so Matthew was trying to prove to Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. And we're going to go into that a little bit. And, um, and, and it's really important because is when, when we have the perspective of Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, it ties in two-thirds of this book with the other one-third of the book. When we don't understand that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, we can, we, we, we can ignore the whole Old Testament because it becomes irrelevant. But the fact that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah means that what happened in the pages of the first two-thirds of the Bible is significant in the, that they're like the prequel. Yeah, you know, you watch Star Wars and you start in episode four and you're like, what the heck is going on? Who is this Obi-Wan Kenobi's? And all these weird names are being thrown at your face. And then you watch the prequel and then you're like, oh, Obi-Wan. <laughs> Beck's two favorite Star Wars characters are Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Vader. It's pole opposites, Beck. You've got to choose a site. No, I like the music that Darth Vader gets when he walks in. <laughs> And then everyone loves Ewan McGregor. So, um, so, so that, we're not going to the prequel today, but we're coming into Matthew. And um, so that's one perspective. And the other perspective that Matthew writes from is as a Christian, a follower of the Messiah, uh, probably he would have called himself simply a messianic Jew, perhaps that's a term that he might have used. In fact, when you go into uh, Israel and you meet people that follow Jesus, they don't call themselves Christians because Christ is a Greek term. They will call themselves messianic Jews to this day. And so as a messianic Jew, as a Christian, Matthew wants Christians to understand the life of the kingdom. That's the other perspective. He wants the Jews to know that the Messiah has come and that this is what the Messiah did and this is what the Messiah taught. And then he wants Christians to come along and understand that this is the life that the Messiah brings. And that's why Matthew 28, we have the most famous verse, the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I command. And that's what, we, we, we have forms of the Great Commission in other Gospels, but Matthew was actually really big about, this is what the kingdom is about. And so he starts off Jesus' ministry with the Sermon on the Mount, and then he finishes off his Gospel with the Great Commission. This is not just a description of Jesus, this is a teaching about the life that you are meant to live. And that is the perspective of Matthew, and these come greatly, beautifully together in the Sermon on the Mount. But before we get into the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 to 7, I want to give you a quick background, because there are four chapters that come before chapter 5. I know you're all really smart, and you know your math. Uh, and there are four chapters, and there's something that's going on. And let me just quickly breeze through some of this to, to set up. Because the Sermon on the Mount, if we read it out of context, we miss it. And in fact, a lot of teaching and preaching over the last two uh, a millennia has cherry-picked bits from the Sermon on the Mount because there are great stuff in there, but sometimes we need to zoom out and see the whole picture. And so Matthew starts 
the first four chapters in setting up Jesus as king, all right? This is really significant. So he starts off in chapter one with a genealogy, which is just a list of names of Jesus's ancestors. And he does that to show that Jesus is descended from King David. Why? Because all of the Old Testament was prophesying that one descendant of David would rise to be the forever king of Israel. Okay, so we have chapter one, David's mention, Jesus is part of that bloodline. He is the Messiah. He is the king. And then in chapter two, we see the Magi visiting Jesus with gifts fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They are not just random gifts that you go to the gift shop. They are not from the hospital gift shop. It's not the blue teddy and the green teddy and the pink teddy. What's the gender of your child? Oh, it's a girl. Let's get the green. Not the green. Pink. Pink. Sorry. I think my son is colorblind. I have issues. And you, you know, this is not random gifts. They are gifts to inaugurate the coming of the king. They are significant, and we don't even know how many magi there were. They, they, they could have been more than three, but we know that they specifically brought these three gears because these three gears were symbolic. They were symbolic of we are making peace with this king, right? And this is so significant that King Herod, who is the king of that day, was so worried about the Magi bringing this symbolic, significant gift to Jesus that he kills all the boys in Bethlehem, just to be sure that his position was secure. Matthew adds all of these details. Why? Because Jesus wasn't just a normal human being. He wasn't just a normal boy that happened to be born in Bethlehem at that specific time. He's a descendant of David, even outsiders to Israel. In fact, sometimes in the Gospels, it seems like outsiders know more than the insiders that the king has come. It's wonderful, it's amazing, and the Magi come, and King Herod, who is supposed to be a Jew himself, he was like, let's kill that guy. He's like, come on, man. If God was going to send him aside, do you think you're going to be able to kill him? Anyway, that's his problem. Uh, he dies soon after. And then we get to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, as we were talking about in the last series about spirit baptism, he proclaims that Jesus is the spirit baptizer. And that's a very significant thing. The more I've dived into this, when it says that I baptize you in water, but one will come and baptize you with the spirit, this is actually a proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah. Only God can give us God. That's what it's supposed to mean. We're not just supposed to see the Spirit as, a, oh, He's giving you a cool gift. This isn't a cool gift. This is God giving you God. This is God giving you Himself. No other person can say, God, you give me you. Can you imagine what it's like if you come to God's presence and say, you need to give me more? It's like when my child, who's three, says to me, Daddy, I need TV. Just because he said, I need TV, he don't get no TV, right? You know, you're not going to let a petulant, rude child tell you what you're going to do. You're going to teach them manners because they need to know that I am dad and you are not. In the same way, only God can give God. And so when we sing songs of like, God, I need you, we can't have this perspective 
That is like, my singing is somehow persuading God to come. Rather, it's me shifting and understanding that God has given and that I'm just stepping into that space of like, yes, you are here and you have given. Anyway, all of that to say that Matthew deliberately sets up all of these events, not because they are fun little anecdotes. It's not like five fun facts about Jesus. No, no, this is five important facts about who we are dealing with. And so Jesus starts... At the end of chapter 4, going around preaching his message and drawing a crowd and healing uh, people, driving out demons and all of that. And then we get to um, chapter 5. And this is significant because what we are meant to see, I believe, is that this is Jesus's inauguration message. This is, if you will, the president's first address. This is King Charles's first address to the nation as the king. This is, you know, our prime minister's first speech. Think about it as the first speech. This is the ruler who has stepped into power, stepped into authority, stepped into position. This is this ruler giving us the first message. What is that first message all about? Why is the, the why is the first speech important? It's because the first speech sets the tone of how this person is going to rule. It sets the tone of what this person is going to be all about. It is not just a fluffy message. This is saying, you have chosen me in, in, our, in our context. Back then as a monarch, you're not chosen. But he's like, I am now king and this is what I'm about. I am now king, and this is how I'm going to rule. I am now king, and this is what my kingdom looks like. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, they're not suggestions. When we read the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a bunch of really nice sayings. This is the king's address to his subjects. And in our modern-day context, when we focus on the grace of God, a God who loves us and who would give himself for us, which is highly important and significant in the gospel message, we sometimes forget that God is still God. And we sometimes forget that God has every right to say, this is what my kingdom looks like. And I hate it when I sense in myself or in other Christians, God, can I give you some suggestions? on what my life should look like? Why do we think that? No. This is the king's message. We should have called this series the king's speech. And someone should do a movie about it. Not about a stuttering, useless monarch, but about a king of all kings, the creator of the heavens and the earth, addressing his people and as much as the movie, the real movie, if you will, the King's Speech was one of hope and encouragement and inspiration, I think that we should read the Sermon on the Mount and go, man, this life that this King is bringing to me is amazing. So I want you to hold that in mind as we dive into it. 
One theologian puts it this way, Jesus' sermon unfurled as a sweeping declaration of the character, influence, and actions of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, articulated with perfect intent by the king himself. What a wonderful statement. Jesus' sermon unfurled as a sweeping declaration of the character, the influence, and the actions of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, articulated with perfect intent by the king himself. All right, so you ready? We're going to get into the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to pray uh, before we dive in any further. Holy Spirit, I pray that you are here as our guide. You are here as our teacher. As we bring this sermon, this most significant sermon, and we unpack it, I pray that you are speaking to us. You're helping us see who you are calling us to become, who you are calling us to be like, what you're calling us to do. And I pray that we will have the boldness and the trust to walk in that way. We thank you, Holy Spirit. We pray that in your name. Amen. All right, so Matthew 5 verse 1 says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, when, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So, um, another fun little thing here, it says that Jesus went up a mountain. And I don't think that this is just a nice little statement. This is a significant statement. It wasn't just like Jesus literally sat on a mountain. Because if you can go to the title slide, Anthony, um, you see this picture. This picture is literally what people think is the location of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't see any mountains. <laughs> I see maybe a gentle rolling hill, right? When you go to Israel, they don't really have a lot of mountains. It's like Perth saying that we got hills. We have bumps in the terrain. When you go over east and you see a mountain, that's a mountain. When you come to Perth, you go to the Perth Hills, it was like, oh, okay. I don't even know what's the classification of a hill. Maybe we just scrape in. It's just like, say, Mandurah is a metro region. But anyway, side notes. Um, Jesus went to this place around his area, which looks beautiful, but they called it a mountain. The Sermon on a Mount, maybe more accurately, could be called a Sermon on a Hill, maybe, or a Sermon on a Gentle Incline with nice green grass, right? That's what I see. But I think that Matthew chose the word mountain because the word mountain is very significant in Jewish understanding. And I think specifically there is one mountain that people are supposed to be thinking of and I think that's Mount Sinai. Because what happened in the Old Testament is that the law of God for the newly formed nation of Israel was given to them at Mount Sinai. Yes, Ten Commandments, Moses going up, receiving the tablets. You know that old dad joke? Moses is the first one to download anything from the cloud onto his tablets. Yes, yes, you get it? And so we have Moses as the first one to inaugurate a nation and say, this is the way that we live under God. That's what happened in the Old Testament. And now we have one who is greater than Moses who has come, and he is giving a message about this kingdom 
that God is wanting to form. You see this parallel here? And so there are very big themes here. We're not supposed to read the Sermon on the Mount as something that is individual. We're not supposed to read the Sermon on the Mount as, and go, oh, this is all about me. Stop it, Westerner. This is not about you. This is about the kingdom. This is about the nation of God, if you will. This is not about just you individually, but it's about you living in relationship to other people who are part of this nation known as the kingdom of God. When we forget that and we locate this as, as a message that Jesus spoke to me about my life, it is really easy to go, I am going great. I'm amazing. No wonder Jesus chose me to be part of his team. No, we need to understand the communal nation language that is being used for this sermon, right? And so Jesus then starts off with reading uh, with, with, this, with these few very famous verses. Let's read this, Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Uh, anyone knows what this bunch of statements are often called? The Beatitudes. How many grew up in church and in kids' church, they said, these are the beautiful attitudes. <laughs> yeah? Anyone remember the beautiful attitudes? It is terrible interpretation. <laughs> Do not call these statements attitudes. This is not about attitudes. This is about so much more. The reason why it's called the Beatitudes is because um, uh, in the Latin, these are called the Beatitudo. Beatitudo, that's Latin, and it literally means blessedness. So these are statements of blessedness. These are not statements of how you are meant to act. These are statements describing how you live in blessedness. That's very different. This is not the new Ten Commandments. That's not what this is about. This is about God instructing his people to understand and to recognize where blessedness lies. Let me unpack this for you a little bit, because when we use the word blessed in our Western context, we often think about it as an active receiving of something that makes us happy. Because bless, the word blessed, it actually means, uh, it can be translated happy. Uh, which I, I feel is this, I don't know, I, I think it loses so much, but that's the connotation. And, and I think at the same time, it's kind of cool to know that God wants us to be blessed. God wants us to be happy in, some, in, in, in a really great way, but possibly not in a way that our culture describes. But when we think about being blessed, we think about it as we have received something as a gift, Right? So, for example, it's uh, school holidays and you go to carousel shops and it's, uh, you happen to be, maybe this is the week before Christmas and you're doing your Christmas shopping. 
How many of you know you're not going to get a parking spot? Yeah? But then suddenly someone pulls out right in front of you, right at the door, and you slip right in. I'm so blessed. God has somehow instructed that person to leave so that I could have the convenience of parking right outside the shop. Hashtag blessed. That's kind of, you know, I bought the lottery ticket and God somehow used that and gave me the right numbers and now I have a million dollars. Hashtag blessed. We think about it as something that is active, right? When we think that God, when we want to pray a blessing on, uh, on, on someone, we say, God, bless this person. We're not, we're, we're actually trying to say, God, I want you to give something to this person, right? And so blessedness in our context has this really um, uh, uh, active kind of look to it. To, uh, to it. And, and we can therefore read uh, the Beatitude really wrongly because we can think about it as a transaction. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit because when we uh, make ourselves poor in spirit, suddenly God will give us the kingdom of heaven. You get what I mean? We kind of see this as a transaction. So God, you're saying that if I mourn, then I will receive your comfort. God, you're saying that if I am meek, then you will give me the earth. You're saying that if I hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will satisfy me. And, and we see this as a transaction, an exchange. And we, when we do it that way, we're seeing this as the new Ten Commandments. And we are completely missing the point of the Beatitudes. We make them beautiful attitudes, nice things to have, rather than essential elements of the kingdom that we are a part of. And let me just go on to say and, pre and preface um, or, or give an insight into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus doesn't talk about your prosperity. Jesus doesn't say you do good and you will receive good. In fact, Jesus says that your righteousness needs to be greater than the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom. He gives greater restrictions on anger and lust. And then he tells you that you need to love your enemy and that you need to give more. And at no point when he gives any of those instructions, does he say, and you will receive a greater portion of the kingdom? No. He doesn't give you many great things when we sacrifice for the kingdom. At least that is what I was looking at when I was reading this. I'm like, if someone is reading the Sermon on the Mount to find out how to receive more blessing, you're going to be very sad. You're going to receive these instructions as, oh, I looked lustfully at this other person. I now need to gouge my eyes out. <laughs> if not, no blessing for you. I am angry with someone. Oh, chop your flippin' arm off. If not, no blessing for you. I see poor and needy people. Give them all that you have. 
if not no blessing for you. If we see this as a bunch of things that God is telling us to do in order to receive blessing, we're going to miss the whole point of the sermon. So what does Jesus mean by blessed? See, the word blessed is someone is actually a really common phrase, not really, is quite a common phrase in the Old Testament. It appears 26 times in the book of Psalms, which is a devotional uh, book, is, is about understanding our life in, in, with God. It appears eight times in the book of Proverbs, which is about uh, the wisdom of how we are meant to live, and so you would understand that blessedness and uh, Proverbs go together. And then it's scattered across the Old Testament another 10 times in the Old Testament. But together... I love this. The word blessed refers to signs of a life lived in proximity to Yahweh. That's what, when the Jewish mindset comes into this, when we think about blessedness, it's not about receiving something else, it's about living close to God. Signs of a life lived in proximity to Yahweh. And this commentator goes on to say, I love this, that the person so blessed is in touch with the fruitfulness of the Creator Himself. Such a one lives a fulfilled life, life as God intended it to be lived before Him. That's what blessedness is. It's not because you receive a parking lot in front of the shops. It's not because you received something that made you happy. It's not because you got a new gift. It's because you actually receive this vibrancy of life because you are next to the creator of life himself. It is because you know, wow, there is this power. There's this anointing. There is this uh, uh, energy. There's this life inside of me because the fruitfulness of the Creator is my portion. When we understand fruitfulness in that way, then maybe we can see that the Sermon on the Mount, the whole Sermon on the Mount, is about true human flourishing. This is about us changing and, and shifting our alignment to understand this is what life is all about. This is where life comes from. And this is so important when we read the Sermon on the Mount because if we think that this is about getting what I want and, and still keeping my personal direction in life, then you are missing it. You are wanting, not blessing, but you are wanting gifts to pursue your own life. The Sermon on the Mount isn't prosperity gospel. It's about the kingdom life. This is about Jesus saying, you want to find real life? This is what the kingdom looks like. Let me put it in these terms for you. Blessedness is not like a tree that you are receiving, you know, extra scoop of nutrients and it's like, okay, yep, yep, you, here you go, here you have something a little bit more. Blessedness is about transplanting that tree and putting it in, in already rich soil and placing it next to never-ending streams of water because that's going to cause it to flourish. But let me also put this before you, that when you transplant a tree from another place into this place, 
It's gonna take time to experience the flow of life. You know that uh, if you take a tree and you just transplanted it and you go, oh, it's still not growing after three days, and then you take it out and you put it into another spot, and then you take it out and then you put it into another spot, and you take it out and you put it into another spot, what happens? It is still, it, you'll probably die. But yet in our Christian life, we're not trying, it, it feels like, in my opinion, no one's, uh, I, I've come to this discovery, if you will, that, that where is the place that will bring the flourishing? Where's that place? That is the question that we should be asking. That is the question, not, not, not moving around all the time trying to find out oh, what's best for me. And I feel like in this current culture, there is this transient nature to our lives where we try to go from place to place in order to find blessing rather than to be anchored with God and to go, God, what does my life look like? And the one place, that the one person that knows what flourishing looks like for you. And you know what? This reminds me of a psalm. In fact, the very first psalm goes like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Read this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, not all the time, but in its right season, and his leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers, he flourishes. Why? Because he he understands that is not where flourishing is. This is where flourishing is. And so as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to be blessed. But I want you to be blessed not with a million dollar check, but with an understanding of like, God, I want to live in proximity with you. Because when I am in proximity with you, I have all that I need. When we don't know and we don't have a revelation that our closeness with God is all that we need. We continue keeping our eyes out for other forms of blessedness. And I think that's why Jesus started this with these statements to say, it's not about the external rewards but it's about an inner peace. It's about an inner realization that I have come in contact with one who is live himself. In our church, we've got our vision as inspiring people to live, and sometimes people laugh at it. Because it's like, oh, that person is not dead, right? It's like, what are you, the resurrection church? And I was like, yes, because I realized that without God, my life is corrupted and already dying. Without Christ, my life is diminishing. And every time I go away from Christ, my life is diminishing. That is the pattern of this world. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Why do we look at external rewards? Oh, 
this new workplace has people that seem to like me better. This must be where God has called me. Why do we look externally? Oh, oh, oh this place is giving me a promotion and, and, and is giving me what I'm worth. This must be God opening the door. Possibly. Possibly not. Because if God only uses external rewards to show where blessedness is, the richest people in the world know God better than I do. And the richest people in the world are sad, broken, searching. Maybe if I buy Twitter, I'll be happy. Oh no, Twitter is a bung deal. Yes. Maybe if I go to space, I've got money to go to space now. I'll go to space, don't make me happy. I'll name my kids a mathematical formula because it makes me happy. Your child's broken because you're broken. I haven't mentioned any names, you can't sue me. And I'm probably getting a bit sharp, but there's just something in me that's going, why don't we go to the creator, our maker, and work out what it looks like to flourish. But when we look at this, it's a bit scary. Because Jesus says, you want to know what flourishing looks like? You're poor in spirit. You mourn. You're meek. You hunger and thirst. You're merciful. You're pure in heart. You're a peacemaker. You'll be persecuted. Others will revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you because you are mine. I wonder if we understand that being close to God is not about comfort, but it's about being close to Christ. And I think Jesus was wanting to set up, you've come from all over the nation and you sat at this mountain to hear the king speak. And you think that I'm going to bring in a kingdom that is going to overthrow your oppressors. And I am, but not the oppressors that you think. And I'm going to demand something from my citizens. But in exchange, you get an everlasting kingdom. Do you want it? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a whole book about the Sermon on the Mount. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. I read it earlier this year. And one of the things that he does is that he brings the Sermon on the Mount and he situates it with the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. The rich young ruler says to Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do? to find life. Jesus seems to humor him a little bit and says, well, you know the law. Do all of those things. And this rich young ruler says, I've done those things, but something is still missing. And then what does Jesus say? You give up your old life and you follow me and you'll find that life. 
There is a point in our fellowship of Jesus where we need to realize that Jesus' love costs you nothing. There's no action of yours that earns you Jesus' love. But at the same time, there is this stark realization that I give up everything in order to follow Christ. And I wanted to start this message this morning, this series this morning, and my time is running out, with this understanding that if you are in this room, I believe that you are here because you think that there is a greater life available for you. And I promise you that there is. Jesus said that I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And not just a life that when you die, you go to heaven and all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. That's not what that's about. Heaven is here and later. There is a fullness that is coming. That, that, that's what we hope for. That's what we reach for. That's what we are looking forward to. But even now, there is a life that is worth living. And if you're in this room, I'm going to assume perhaps rightly, perhaps wrongly, that there's something in you that says there is a greater life for me. Perhaps it's a little bit like what C.S. Lewis wrote. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Maybe I was made for another life. And yes, you are. There is a creator who knows you and is intimately in love with you And he's saying, you follow me. You follow me no matter what it takes. You follow me through the good and the bad. And there are going to be times when you feel like you are prospering and on the top of the world. And then there are going to be other times that people are going to persecute you and they're going to revile you because you are following me. But as long as you realize that the greatest gift that God has given us is himself, nothing else compares. Why would someone persecute you on behalf of Jesus if you're not even close to him? It's because people see the Jesus in you and that's why you get persecuted. That's a good thing. Why? Because I have Jesus in me. And we need to flip certain things around and realize that Jesus is saying that my kingdom is where I am. And if you are here, my fruitfulness and my life washes over you. And it washes over you. Can we get the band up this morning? I just want to pray. I want to pray for people because I get this sense that over the next few years, there's a shift that is coming to our church and to our people. It's a shift that is saying, I'm not here for myself. I'm here for the kingdom. Why would anyone persecute you if you're not doing anything that is shaking things up? Why would you need to be meek if you are always comfortable and have everything that you need? Why would you need to be a peacemaker if you're always trying to live in harmony with everyone? 
Why would you need any of those things except that the life that God calls you to live, the life that is going to cause you to flourish, the life that is going to bring such great prosperity, a true prosperity of the soul is going to cost you, is going to make you look different, is going to make you sound different, is going to make you uh, uh, be different to what the world puts out for you. If we carry that in mind over the rest of the series, I think you will start to see the beauty in what Jesus is saying. And not a bunch of commandments, but it's about locating where the kingdom is at. It's locating what kind of life brings me greatly into the kingdom and in a, a life that is located next to Yahweh himself. So God, I pray over our church that we would open our eyes and see that life doesn't consist in a collection of wealth and materials. Help us to see that the statuses in this world, the position in this world, the comfort of this world is no comfort at all. But God, I pray that we would be like those disciples at the Sermon on the Mount, sitting at your feet, listening to the King and saying, yes, I will follow. Yes, I will follow. Yes, I will follow you wherever you lead me because you have the answers that I'm looking for. You have the life that I am seeking out, that there is nothing else, nowhere else that could ever satisfy. God, I pray for boldness in this church to follow you, come what may. I pray that in this church that there would be a conviction that there's nowhere else that would rather than be uh, rather be than uh, be here with you, Jesus. Following your leadership and your voice. I want to be blessed, God. I want to be blessed. I want to live blessed. I want to stay blessed. So help me. Help me, God. Help me find you. Help me hear you. Help me answer your call. Come on, if you're in this place and there are prayers resounding in you, can you just stand up? Let this morning be a, a call for us to say, God, I am willing to let go of whatever else I want to I be different to the rich young ruler. I don't want to come in contact with the author of life and walk away with my life intact. But I'm leaving Christ behind. So God, I pray for every person that is standing. I pray that this commitment makes a difference in their lives and in their hearts. I pray to God that you become more real this week, that you grow in greater significance in their life. I pray that your voice becomes louder. I pray that your guidance becomes clearer. I pray to God that every moment, even the mundane moments, we will start to see that I'm living with the Creator and that is life and that is flourishing and there is more. I pray that there will be a purpose in our steps, that when we go where we are traveling, we will see the hand of our Creator 
the hand of our King moving and that we would be driven to partner with you in all that you are doing. I thank you, God, and I pray this in your name. Amen. This is going to be a great series. I think God's pivoting and doing something in our lives. And I'm really excited to see where God leads us. I think that there are going to be times where you're going to feel challenged. Can I just put this out there? Challenge is good because you're starting to see the disconnect. And I think that's God's invitation to you to say, let's connect. And there might be change that is necessary. In fact, I hope that there is change. But you work this out. You say, God, help me to work this out. Help me to see what's going on here. But God is doing something in our midst. And so I invite you to follow along over the next, I think, seven weeks as we go through this series. Let me just pray. Let's close this morning. God, I pray, I pray that we hear your voice. I thank you that your desire is to see us blessed. And I pray that over every person, that we would come in contact with life itself, and that is you. I pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.